Hey, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I am Omid Farhang. My guest today is the great Roger Camp, co-founder, chief creative officer of Camp and King, the agency he created in 2011 with partner Jamie King that combines brand storytelling with expertise in digital, social, and content development, built on a simple philosophy to make brands, quote, conversation-worthy. Since then, Camp and King has won the Ad Age Small Agency of the Year Award four times. They were selected as one of Outside Magazine's best places to work in America in 2018. And just last month, all of Roger and Jamie's success culminated in the acquisition of their agency by Havas. Roger has had a storied career. In 1996, he joined Cliff Freeman as an art director. In 2000, he founded Camp and Arbuez in San Francisco. The following year, he was lured to Wyden Kennedy to work as a creative director. And in 2006, he became CCO at Publicis and Hal Reine. In his 20 plus years in the business, Roger has won every major creative award numerous times. He is one of the most awarded art directors in the history of the DNAD Awards. He was voted the top art director in the country. He was also elected to the One Club's Board of Directors, has had his work featured on the greatest commercials of all time list, and Adweek chose his Holiday Inn spot as one of the top 10 funniest commercials ever. He's famously one of the really good-hearted people in all of advertising. I'm so inspired by the company that he's built. This is Roger Camp and I talking to ourselves. You doing all right, man? Yeah, everything is fine. I, uh, I'm literally just getting all back into the mix of things now. I went and spent a month. My dad was, came, uh, has lung cancer, stage three lung cancer. Yeah. So I went with him to go to kind of take care of, like try and drive him there. So I've just gotten back into the mix of it all now. So I'm just back like this week. Uh, I got in like two, three days ago. How difficult, I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear that. How difficult is it to unplug from a company that takes up so much of your emotional and physical Absolutely. Space? I mean. Absolutely. Like it, it, it was hard to not be involved. And at the same time I had to, cause I was so, you know, spread thin taking care of uh, mom and dad on the other coast like I just couldn't do it so I just had to just honestly let go it wasn't one of those things where like I still want to be in but I can't it's just like fuck it I can't right I'm gonna have to step back yeah so and that's where you're just at this point you've grown the company to a level presumably where you know who you can just say like look dude I need you to cover me and by the way the other people who you need understanding from who you've earned the right to to, to achieve that understanding with is your clients. I'm sure your clients said, Roger, you know, let us know when you're back and take all the time you need. It was that there was a lot of that, but that's also something I could talk about, I guess, even more is what becomes that transition. Cause I have reached out in my, when I was away for the month, reaching out to uh, PJ Pereira, Venables, Jose Moya, and David Angelo, just to understand when you got to that point of when you had to give up some of that, what you've done to build your agency, now I've got to give it up to that that second group that's coming in to take it over. Like, how do you do that? What's that transition like? What do you still retain? What do you empower them to go do? That's a great pin to put in a grenade that we will detonate momentarily. Let's start where we start every interview, which is Roger Camp, where are you from? And what did your parents do? <laughs> I am from New fucking Jersey. Uh, and my parents, my father worked in a plastics company. So he worked, uh, it was called, well, it is, I'll, I'll say Monsanto, even though it comes with a lot of baggage, but he was in charge of kind of building or making what was greenhouse film, like big sheets of plastic that would cover greenhouse, which for me as a kid, like, I don't know what's going on. I just know that dad would bring home rolls of plastic that were the size of football fields. And in the summer, you lay those bastards out and fill them with water and soap, and they become the best looking side in the neighborhood. And in the winter, you curl up the edges and fill it with water, and it was a ice skating rink. So that's what dad did. Mom worked from home, um, uh, and she kind of helped out here in their part-time jobs for the most part. But mostly stay-at-home mom for, the, for, uh, for my childhood. And what did, what did 12-year-old Roger want to be when he grew up? I think it was uh, an artist. I think it was an artist by that point. And it's funny because I, I started by going, my dad, I was about 12. My father had just seen some artwork that a cousin of mine had done. And it was, again, know that my parents come from like Pennsylvania. This is Appalachia. And one of my cousins did this fantastic drawing of a deer. 
My father in passing says to me, oh, be great if you could draw something like that. And I remember going like, oh, fuck, I'm going to go make dad happy. I'm going to learn how to draw. And I started me down this path of like, I want to draw stuff. So then started to do uh, drawing. It started to be comics. So it was just trying to figure out like, what is going to be the thing that I'm going to do when I got older that would actually get me a, a, a job eventually. And I remember being in art class when I got uh, artist of the year. That's right. Piscataway High School, 1987, for those keeping track. And uh, I remember my dad met with my art teacher to say, can my boy make a living doing this? Can he make a living doing art? And she was like, there's lots of venues and places for him to go use his art, whether it's design or blah, 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 blah. So it started me down this path of uh, what then became design. I accidentally filled out an advertising class because I didn't know the difference between design and advertising. And this was kind of getting into School of Visual Arts in New York. And I remember taking an ad class going, ha, ah, this is fun. Yeah. I get to be kind of creative and come up with conceptual stuff. But then I could also do the, the hands-on tactile stuff of like drawing and putting that together. Because well, that's what we did back, back in the day. Yeah. And... First of all, I mean, a bunch of questions there. That's what we did back in the day. Do, do you, do you, unpack it. Unpack do you still have a physical book? It's like in a closet somewhere, the original Ooh, physical you know, book. I, so I was just at my parents and I went in their attic looking for it. And while I did find the 1987 Artist of the Year Award from Piscataway High School, I did not find the physical portfolio book that I did have. I so, yes, 100%. It's sort of an amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain that to any of the young whippersnappers working at Camp and King. But the idea that you'd fly and hopefully get a meeting with someone and you'd bring in this sort of cumbersome book and they would they would flip through the pages at it while you sat there <laughs> quietly. You know, I just, I, just, I just missed that era. I mean, I was right in the transition period, but I kind of, I got to live it vicariously through my brother a little bit. It must have been very stressful to watch somebody look at your work on the spot. But that's all you wanted to get was just get in front of that person. Because I can explain if there's something you don't get about it. Oh, let me fill in the gaps. Let me start to fill that in. So it was all about getting into that meeting. That was so important. When you look at, when you look at, uh, just jumping around here, but when you look at a link now, how much are you looking at the work versus how much are you looking at the person's bio, you know, where yeah. they've worked, the way Absolutely. they describe themselves? I mean, do you have sort of a a methodology when you click open on a link about what exactly you're, you know, how you weigh, how you weigh, um, you know, the priority? No, I, it, and it's a, it's a thing at the agency now because we have a lot of discussions. By the time that that person's work gets to me, it's been vetted by a number of people that like them enough. And they're kind of saying, all right, of, you know, the, this position, we've got these three or four people, take a look at this. So I'm almost assuming when I get to that point, they've, they vetted the fact that this person can do advertising. Like they're good and they conceptual. I, I'm gonna hit on that, but what I'm trying to get to is what sauce do they add then to the agency? Right. What is that other thing that they bring that's different for a perspective or what passion do they have? One of my, uh, there was a fun story that I, um, when I was at, at Fallon, we uh, were looking at, uh, her name is Emily McDowell. Just a fantastic writer. She's gone on now and she's writing, greeting cards. She's had a company that's been, I think, I don't know if it's in the middle of being bought, sold. Like she's created a true greeting card company um, with distribution, with uh, um, a, a lot around it. And when she first came, she was a copywriter. And I remember I looked at her work and I was like, all right, it's great. Like you get the mechanics. I get this. You've got a great, and I air quote this, you got a great book, but like, who are you? Like, what do you want? What are your passions? What do you like? I was like, can you just give me something that is just about you? Let's just start there. She came back about a week later. It was just in binder and it was, it had stuff in there that was just thoughts, insights, random, like a, a concert ticket that was taped down, but a wonderful explanation of like how it felt to be at that concert that night. She had these little insights about like, I, now that I've turned, I don't know what she was, 25, I will never move somebody for pizza ever again. Like there were just one little, and I was like, oh my God, I know you now and I love you, please. And we hired her. She's gone on to be, again, if you read some of her writing, Emily McDowell greeting cards, uh, they're amazing. I mean, amazing. You, can, you can, now that you've, you guys have reached a certain scale where you can go and, you know, poach that person from Goodby up the street and go like, yeah, this person won a, a Grand Prix, let's bring him to Camp and King. But when you start the company, you can't pay for past performance, you know? So like, <laughs> I mean, for me, a lot of times it's like, all right, I'm looking at this 
person's book. The work's not that good, but they haven't yeah. really been around that long. So, you, right. know, I have, you know, but then it's like, you know, have you ever been in a band? Have you ever played on a team of yes. any kind? And you can sort of, you know, do you have some of the, it sounds like you have that sort of, you leave it a little bit more open-ended, like show me something besides advertising that tells me something about you. A hundred percent. And I also think once you get somebody in there, I have a deal with every creative that I hire. It's like, I'm going to bring you in. And if, if you do me right and we do you right and it all works out. And at some point you ever want to leave, like, just tell me, like, you don't have to like try and sneak around. I'm not going to be the guy that tells you to get the fuck out of my office and kick you out. I'll never be that. But if you do want to go somewhere else and you're done, let me know. Cause if you let me know, it'll a, give me a little time to start to kind of backfill what be your position so I can get somebody in there. But also I'm more than happy. Like I know enough people like you and all of our friends in the industry that you tell me the three places you want to go. I can probably get you at least in touch with that person to get you a meeting. So I've had that relationship with every creative. And yes, there are some that don't work out. Um, our, our, our hit rate is, is actually really pretty good. Our churn rate, um, our retention rate is really good as well. And maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we keep growing. So maybe they, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that mentality is a, is a symptom of a, of a sort of broader approach that just makes for a more warm and welcoming environment. I mean, I remember, I never saw it up close, but the, the you know, so the story goes at CPB, like, you know, if you threatened to quit, it would sort of be like, pack your shit and get the fuck. Totally. You know, yes. and it's, and there's such a hypocrisy to it because whoever you're ever quitting to, I mean, this isn't specific to CPB, whoever you're quitting to, it's like, you think that fucking guy never left a job to take another <laughs> right. job? And yet you're exactly. supposed to have this blood oath to him or her? Yeah. Um, so let's, let's fat, you know, we, we were talking about kind of you coming up, winning the art award. Let's fast forward to you joining Cliff Freeman in 1996. I, I think of epic runs that agencies go on and, you know, BBH had an epic run. Crispin had an epic run. Wyden's had an epic run that I don't think has really stopped since the mid eighties. And yeah, true. I think the one that kind of gets lost to history a little bit is the epic run of Cliff Freeman. What would you like to tell again? I'm going to use the term young whippersnapper uh, out there <laughs> about, about Cliff Freeman in the nineties, because I, I don't think it's an agency that gets the credit that it deserves. It, you're right. I think for any other new generation, maybe it's because they haven't survived. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a, a case of him being so, he was so great with comedy, but it also, it taught you some bad habits. Um, as a super young creative, it was great. Like the, the, the people that were there, and it was small when I first got there. I think there may have been four creative teams, but the amount of work that they were churning out, and it was Little Caesars back in the day, which my very first, you know, production, my piece that I've ever made was for Little Caesars was a great starting point. All he cared about was awards. Like that was his whole intent. Um, and you'd come up with ideas and you'd have different, they're different brands in the, in the agency. And if you couldn't sell it for something, you might sell it for something else. And I remember being like a young creative, like winning awards like crazy. And this is fantastic. And the career is blossoming. And at some point then I went to widen. And I remember this like learning curve of like, there was something I was working on. I presented something to Dan and I almost did like, and then it's this. And I did like a jazz hand thing. And not really a jazz hand thing, but it was funny. And he was like, but that's not right for this brand. And I was like, oh, right. And there became a learning curve of like, oh my God, every brand has a soul. There's a, there's a way that it carries itself, a way that presents itself that should be completely different, unique, but it doesn't have to be just funny. Um, so back in Cliff Freeman days, great people were there. I also think there's a lot that I learned there from just the camaraderie. And it's part of those pieces that we all grab from the agencies that you've been at to create the place that, that, that we are now. And I'm not saying it's, it's ever that, but you, I loved the amount of people and the amount of friendships that I had at Cliff Freeman, where you would just open your door and say, I've got this much of an idea. It's kind of interesting. What would you do with it? And you trusted everybody enough around you not to be dicks and they would contribute. And it was a great experience to make something better. And it contrasted, I think, from a short stint that I had at BBDO where it was, this is my assignment, get the hell off of this. It's all me. But then you go to, to Widen and you grab another little piece of like people bled that culture. And what I loved about like things like Widen was like you never knew when you would walk into the atrium or into the agency and there would be a man playing the flute, carrying the goat, 
with like four dancing people behind them. It was just like, what will I experience today? And I think there's that kind of like, what can I, what can I bring to people? What are we showing them on a daily basis when they show up at work, when we used to show up at work, that just felt like it's opening their minds or it's something new. Cliff Freeman made a lot of funny eccentric work because the man himself, Cliff Freeman, was a funny eccentric <laughs> guy. Do you have a, I feel like everyone I know has who worked from has their one Cliff Freeman story. What's your one Cliff Freeman story? Oh my God. Um, there was an argument we were having with a director about a way something was going to be framed up and shot. Cliff was on set that day. We're going back and forth saying it should be shot from here. It should be shot from here. I think it should be this angle. I really think, and we're going back and forth. The director um, says, and it was completely like Cliff, Cliff made the comment, I've won thousands of awards. I'm telling you, it should be shot from right here. The director's response was, well, me and my two buildings think that we think, I think it should be shot from this angle. And Cliff just stopped. It was like, it was just pow. And he just stared ahead, thought for a good like 15, 20 seconds. And then he turned around. He was like, how, how do I enter the belt? Can we win a building? I want to win a building. Like it just sidetracked this whole conversation because he was so award hungry. It was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that's great. In 2000, you, you start your first company based in San Francisco. Uh, Camp Arbois. Were there one or two key lessons from starting your first company that kind of stuck with you as you teamed up later with Jamie King to start your second company? Was there like, man, if I ever get to do this again, never forget this valuable lesson from company number one? Yeah. Um, and it's definitely partnership. Uh, Eileen Arbois and I had a great relationship. She was a client of mine. And this was dot-com crazy time. So we're like, you know what? I've got a good body of work she was a client with kind of a deep Rolodex. We're gonna go in and just start to mine some things and see what we can start to create. And we were completely naive, a million percent naive. Um, but I do remember just, you know, at some point your vision on what you think this is gonna be starts to fracture and it becomes a little bit different. So the one learning moment that I had there was finding that partner that is gonna be your counterbalance, making sure that you are in lockstep. And that is the one thing I think Jamie and I have and, um, we, we rarely get into any real disagreements because our vision is generally the same. How we get there, and there'll be debates on certain things on what we want to take on, um, opportunities, there's different things. But for the most part, he, he does things that I am never going to be able to touch. And I have another completely separate side that he will never do, yet we are no, all being drawn to do the, you know, go in the same direction. So we are always step there. It's interesting, like the, you know, the original guys at Mother where it's two creatives or Johannes Leonardo. I mean, that actually, those types of relationships kind of baffle me because you have the, the kind of the creative partnership at the top. And then I think with you and Jamie, it's kind of the classic, like these two people want the same thing, share the same vision, are rowing the boat in the same direction and are not redundant to each other in any way. Yeah. Is, that, yeah. is that how you describe it? It totally is. And I had the opportunity. So I, I left, I think it was Fallon. I came... Yeah, I left Fallon. I was looking for a job in San Francisco. I'm like, because we had moved a bunch of time. I'm like, let's just pick a spot. We're going to live till we die. Let's go to San Francisco. I get back here and I start doing freelance. And I'm, I'm running pitches for Riney at the time where Jamie is kind of the new business guy. And I remember doing that and going like, fuck, I feel invincible. He does this smart thing and sets me up. And I get to do kind of this jazz hand what if. What if you stood for this? And what if it was this? What if you were about? And it all was grounded. And I remember thinking like we, and we won a number of pitches where he and I were at the helm, me as a freelancer. At the same time, I was helping at the uh, Venables and Bell, who I both worked with, work, worked with in the past, um, and they were pitching Audi. And uh, they ended up winning Audi. Uh, they sent me an offer too. So I had an offer from Venables Bell, but it was gonna be like, it was a third, and it was, it was, again, they got two creative guys there. Or am I going to go to Ryan, which didn't have any sheen. There was nothing sexy about it, but I did feel pretty invincible with Jamie. And I remember going like, fuck, I think I'm going to go where I feel like I can control my destiny a little bit more. The Venables Bell, again, great guys, great agency. They had the sheen that they were going to go somewhere and that, that win was going to take them places. This one was a little bit more of a build. But again, look what it's turned into, which is this kind of create this lifelong relationship now I have with Jamie. 
Yeah, and we'll come back to it. We're bouncing around a bit here. You know, you had mentioned going to widen. Um, I think that was the early 2000s, right? About 2001. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, a little bit later, but right around there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, correct. So, so here's my question for you. You know, you go to a place like Wyden, especially at that point in your career, you had already accomplished some things. And I think it's always interesting when you go to a company that's so revered like that, where you know, you know, on the one hand, this is a place that I've always wanted to work. There's a sort of kind of mystical quality to it that I want to be exposed to. But I also know that they were doing just fine before I got here and they will be doing just fine after I leave. So do you remember just sort of like what expectation you set for yourself when you went to widen about what you wanted out of it? Or in your mind, did you say, were you open to the possibility that this could be the last job I ever take? Uh, I would, at that point, you're not, I'm hoping. I uh, moved to Portland. It was beautiful and fantastic. You want, I'd love that to be, you know, where I'm going to, to finish my days is continuing to work on great brands at Widen. But then, you know, over time, things change. But I think the thing that when I stepped in there, um, having access to some of those brands had me very excited because of who they were. And there is a mystique. It actually fucked with me a little bit because you come in and I was a creative director on Coca-Cola with Todd Waterbury. Um, we also had, uh, eventually it was Miller at that point, we had electronic arts and it was really interesting when you started to look at the dynamic of there were fiefdoms within Wyden when I was there and it was the Starbucks group who were a bit of the poets. You had the Nike group who were the athletes, it's very high school. And then there was kind of the electronic arts, Miller, um, Powerade group. And that was my group. Um, and I remember going and thinking about like, it was a, it was a Coca-Cola presentation and I was fighting way too hard for something that we could have kind of let that one go knowing there was a bigger prize and I remember fighting tooth and nail going like but this is Wyden and I've got to compete against not only like the history of Wyden but I've got these other groups that I want to show well against when we start looking at the work and it was to the detriment of my relationship with the client at the time but it was such a high bar and I, I was using that bar for everything so just coming into that learning to almost lead and creative direct at that point. Um, but having the, the, the competition to make sure that it's as good as it's going to be actually hurt me, I think, with that client at that moment. But it did teach me to, uh, how to balance when to kind of, you know, understand on something that is going to get you a bigger win later down the road. I just, I don't know anyone who's done well in this business that didn't have to find the line of how hard to yeah. push. Until yeah. they crossed it, you, know, you sort of <laughs> have to cross it to know where it is. Um, well, so you know, you talked about you were so you, you became the CCO at uh, Publicis and Hal Reini. That's where you meet Jamie. Let's talk a little bit about the conversations leading up to the inception of Camp and King. What are you guys starting to talk about? Maybe who brings it up first? What are you needing that you're not getting? What, what are some of those early day conversations sounding like? <laughs> we had talked about it for quite some time. You know, it's one of the things that you're sitting around and having a drink and you're saying, what if, wouldn't this be great? There was a moment when uh, Paris was coming after us for numbers and we had to either say who we were going to cut if we didn't. Let me back up for a minute. We were on the cusp of winning this really big Walmart assignment. Um, and it was, it was substantial. And it would have gotten, again, there's nothing to worry about when we bring this in. And at this point, all indicators are good. We're in the pitch. You're getting that good vibe. You know things are going well. Paris keeps coming back into uh, Jamie's office. He's CEO at the time and saying, you need to tell us who we're going to cut if we don't hit our numbers. We're like, we're so close to this. Just leave us alone. And I remember it was this kind of bigger guy who was the CFO at the time. And he was at a New York accent. And he'd come in every time. And he'd get heat from Paris. Tell me who we're going to cut. We need to tell Paris right now. So eventually we get fed up and we're like, listen, we're so close. He was like, Paris is going to choose their own people if you don't give them names right now. So Jamie grabbed the sheet. He and I looked down and it was like uh, it had the amount that we needed to cut in salaries, which basically added up to his and my salary. And he wrote down his name and my name and we gave it back to him. And the CFO was like, you can't do that. We can't send that back to them. He was like, listen, if we don't win Walmart, we're all screwed anyway. Let's just start there. And it went back to him. We ended up winning Walmart. Everything was fine. But it was just that 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 system to me did not work at the time. And both of us said we were chafing under it and just needed to go find something new. 
so that's where the it, it kind of began. <laughs> that is a that is a romantic. Uh, <laughs> that's beautiful. Well, and the fact that look, I mean, you say that with a chuckle, but those are your livelihoods, and that's how you know you have yeah. people depending on you for you to write your name on that paper and for you to write your two names on that paper in some way sort of carve you out from the rest of the team as like this this entity that believes in each other, uh, you know, disproportionately. Um, That's the right word, disproportionately. <laughs> what were the, you, you had mentioned it a little bit, but, you know, in Jamie, what were those one or two sort of non-negotiable qualities you knew you needed in a partner if you were going to start a company? And with starting a company, all the risk that, that's associated with that and, you know, Let's face it, like in that early go, you're leaving a company where I'm guessing you had a pretty cool salary. You got some pretty cool stock options and um, you had a lot of people who were bringing you work and you were maybe more the filter of work than you were the operator of work. And so it's a big lifestyle change. Um, Did you have any question in your mind that you were doing it with the right person or or maybe wording it a different way? It's just like, you know, in, in, in opting into that marriage, what did you know you needed, you know, for it to work? I think a lot of it had been proven out in our time at Ryan. I think I could look back at where he supported certain directions or things that I had pushed on that were maybe a little, a little far, but did it with a way that was able to make it seem strategically sound. And it was, it was good. I think there was a balance of the push and pull that we had um, that for me had been proven out by our time at Ryan. And we did it. it, Ryan was at that time, really had been decimated and we actually pulled it out of this nosedive and we had people we had we were growing we had good pieces of business that were coming in we were winning pitches um but just doing it under that model wasn't wasn't fruitful for us anymore it didn't feel good and that's what we felt we can go do it on our own also i mean i've generally kind of seen everything i'm 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 naively optimistic so leaving that job to me and as in many other points in my career i just you always feel like I don't know, fuck, if this doesn't work out, we're going to be all right. Something else is going to work out, right? This will happen. I do believe then, even playing that out now, I was just thinking about this the other day. We were incredibly close to winning um, Pizza Hut back in the day. This was years ago during a pitch. And heartbroken when we didn't get it. Came down to the final two. uh, We ended up not getting it. And I remember it was so close. And I remember going like, oh, my God, like devastated, crushed. But now looking back on that, and we've got Papa John's, the relationship with those guys and the growth that they're experiencing and, and we're able to, to work with them, it, it's like nothing I've, we've ever had at Camp and King. Like the trajectory that they are on and, and what we're able to do with them and for them has been amazing. And it wouldn't have been possible. So it's moments like that that prove yeah. out this fact of like, I don't know, take a leap. Don't worry, like bust your ass. But if something doesn't work out, maybe it's not working out for, for a reason. And just wait around to see what that's going to be. Well, as you described the relationship with Jamie, it's almost like there was a certain inevitability to it as you guys developed this this bond and this chemistry. And then, you know, the Papa John story you just told kind of speaks to this idea of like a marriage, you know, the longer you're in it, the more you realize that, you know, relationships have different chapters to them and different seasons to them. And so... In that context, actually, maybe we talk a little bit about Papa John's because you guys pitched Papa John's at a time of extreme turmoil for the company. The founder had sort of been caught up in um, major public controversy and and it was a kind of hotly contested pitch. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the process that led to Camp and King winning the, the Papa John's account. Um, we end up pitching that, yeah, it, it was at a time when the company was, they had almost finished their apology tour, we'll call it, which was all, you know, John is gone. The founder is out. You're left trying to, the the people that are still there are trying to put the pieces back together and, and fix what he did. And they had done a lot of steps to kind of like, again, there was a, um, I'm Papa John, which was showing I'm Papa Susan, I'm Papa. And it was, it was showing that the company is much more than just him. And they did this, this, this work, this kind of um, rebuild. And they reached out to us. And when this pitch happened was at a time where like, we want to now prove what we're about again. Like that we've done this part of it. Now show us how. And we started to do all the research and say that of the you know, major three pizzas, they have the best tasting 
people would, would credit them as having some of the best quality. But the problem is they weren't liked. Like that's a, that's a problem we as advertisers love. You know that the product is good, but you're just not liked right now. I can fix that. Yeah. So when we set out to do that, that was making, we knew that um, Shaq was a part of the board, but we also know that Shaq's involved in a lot of other brands. So how do you use him in a way that's both credible and proves that he has deeper roots than just the, the veneer of what would be a pitch man? like you might be for the general or some of these others. So it was partly us doing a two-prong approach of getting into the pitch, showing food differently for them. Um, I'm really proud of kind of there's the, the work that you'll see that's really pushing some of the promos they're doing. It looks fantastic. And we got John Leguizamo to be the voice and we just kind of give it a nice, let's call it a pizza, uh, a love <laughs> that comes from that. Then you've got the Shaquille work and using Shaquille to kind of introduce what is going to be kind of the, the love that he would have for the brand. And you kind of get to see it through his eyes. He becomes this new person for me to kind of see the new company through. And just making sure that people know that this he's a part of the board. Like when we launched the Chacaroni, which was this charity driven thing. And, and a lot of it went to, um, uh, there were different groups that it ended up helping. What we wanted to make sure that that push was like, that was Shaquille. That's like an embodiment of what Shaquille does as well, which is, you know, he's a giver. It's fun. It's lighthearted. So it's just, it's balancing those two. Roger, going back to the beginning of Camp and King, and it's, you know, it's just you and Jamie to start the company and making that transition out of the, the large agency where you have teams bringing you, you know, <laughs> volumes of work. And really the job is more of a filter job than a, than an ideation generation job. Did you, in leaving the big job for the startup, did you ever question your ability to go back and sort of roll up your sleeves and be the creative source? Was that was that a cause of insecurity for you in any way? It wasn't at the time, and it was just by necessity. Right. Like it was truly Jamie and I. We left because one of uh, an old friend of mine actually. Um, <laughs> she ended up working on. Uh, she was launched JetBlue. Amy Curtis McIntyre, fantastic, um, great CMO. She went and was at Old Navy and she reached out and said, listen, I know you guys have been talking about this. I've got plenty of project assignments. If you want to take that leap, I've got a couple of things that'll get you going. So we're like, all right, that's it. That's all we needed to hear. Rip cord, pull, we're out. And then it's Jamie and I, and it's literally the two of us. We're putting together pitches and these decks that, uh, all night long. And there was a moment where we had a meeting the next day. We were working way into the night and we had an agreement. I'll stay and finish up the deck and I'm going to do everything that has to do to get it finished. I'm going to hand it off to you at like seven in the morning for you to go print it at like the local Ram printing down the street. And that was the trade-off, right? So I get a, I get a text from him later saying like, okay, um, we've quit our jobs. At the time he was just going through a divorce. Uh, we've quit our jobs. He just turned 40. I'm going through a divorce and I'm watching our future being printed by Mitch at the Ram printing <laughs> company. And I wish I had that to this day, because that would be what you would be greeted with in the, in the lobby of Camp and King. If you walked in was that little piece. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, in the early going, was there an agency in particular that you guys sort of modeled yourself after or took particular inspiration from? No, I think it was jumping through. Jamie had come from Leo Burnett. So he, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of strategic rigor that he had learned. So there were a lot of things we wanted to, um, which the partnership with Avas allowed us to do, um, was have access to certain things. So do you want me to get into like a little yeah, bit of that early? Please do. Avas thing. Yeah. So, so when we started, I wanted autonomy and I'm like, motherfucker, I just want this to be ours. And I had reached out to uh, Venables at the time. There were a few people and I was like, how do you structure this in a way that you retain autonomy and it's all you? And you know, they gave me the details, bits and back and forth. And Jamie kept saying, I think we need not a, a parent, but a big brother. And when we set this up, we had met, um, we had talked to some of the folks at Havas and Jamie, even our kind of like contractual year apart, he spent, he was running Havas in Chicago. Um, David Jones was the head of all of Euro RCG at the time, uh, Havas, and we met with him and we kind of laid out our plan and they wanted to just, they wanted a part of it. And at the time that was great. That way he's can be a big brother, but he's not a parent. 
Um, and they ended up taking a small minority stake in us. At the same time, they were grabbing a, a small minority stake in um, Victor's and Spoils, and well as Colleen de Corsi's place, the socialistic. So it was just kind of a thing for him to do, but it allowed us to have that big brother whenever we needed to. And it's not just Jamie and I, and we could pull on the sleeve and say, we need to get this done. I need some developers and I need this. And we'd be able to put a team together and just pay them individually. Right. So it helped a lot. That part helped a lot. Right. Um, all agencies or some startup agencies try to work with, with challenger brands and some try to work with big brands and some try to work with, you know, new economy brands. Did you guys have a philosophy on who's the right kind of client that kind of fits our sensibility or, or, or does it happen more organically like that? The way that, that brands and potential clients kind of find their way into your orbit as you're starting out. It's a little bit of that and trying to decipher who you pitch and what you go after to build the company that you want to build is really difficult. Nobody, I don't, we haven't figured it out yet. When to say yes, when to say no is still really, really hard. Um, but as we started to figure out who and what we wanted to be, I think my fear in starting the company was that we would be more of that. I never wanted to be just the local San Francisco shop. You know what I mean? Creatively driven, fantastic, but just local. I wanted that. I wanted the chance to kind of steer larger brands because that's kind of where we had come from. Right. And it's what I knew we could do really well. But as a startup, you're like, holy shit, how am I going to get this chance? So I think even now you see smaller agencies when they're starting to come out, it, it is a short, fast race to credibility. Because as soon as you can lay claim to a credible client that has a, a little bit of a, a sheen to it, it therefore makes you more sellable to a potential CMO who can then point to their CEO, to their boss and say, oh, these are the guys that did blank or they're working with blank. Right. So, so I think we wanted to make sure we had <clears throat> clients like a Old Navy that just gave us a little bit more um, street cred than maybe, you know, the local uh, frozen yogurt place. It's actually one of the great ironies, you know, that you, when you come up through the big agency business and you work for big brands, and then, I mean, has anyone ever tapped to you like your friend who has a startup product and it's right, it's an inception. For me, sometimes I get hit up to work on stuff like that and I'm like, I sort of don't know what to do. I don't like, I know what to do for the biggest brands in the world, but I don't know what to do for your local coffee shop. Yes, yes, yes. There's part of that. There's part of that. And then you could start to say, I'd love to take it on. Cause back to your point of like, if it's, if it's a great project and we're looking at things now saying like, is it going to be a, a, a win for the, the agency? Is there a financial component? Is there a creative opportunity? We'll weigh those. And that's great. But when you get into those positions where you're like, it's a smaller little thing, do you take a risk on it? Do I divert resources right now that may be needed on something else that could have a bigger uh, return? Or do I actually go after this tiny little thing? It's a hard, that's a hard is balance. It, is it kind of the, the toughest decision that you make throughout each year of the business is deciding what to chase and what to say no to? And is there a is there a guilt that's associated with saying no because you want yes. to say yes, you should say yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. And it comes back to me being optimistic and just kind of naively optimistic is in my career, I've been able to work on really hard assignments and taken some assignments that, that, that may have been difficult. And sure, some of them didn't pan out. Others turned out really well. And those few wins now live in the back of my head is like, we can do that again, right? We can do this. But now I'm starting to play with other people's time. So it used to be my, me as a creative saying like, I'm going to take a chance on this assignment because I know it's going to be hard, but I really have this feeling of what we could do. Let me go pitch it. Now, all of a sudden, an investment like that comes with a, 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 a list of other creatives, st uh, strategists, um, developers. Like there's a number of people now that are now falling in you know, line, chasing this thing with you. Right. It's hard. All agencies try to create proprietary systems and proprietary language that feels ownable. And at Camp and King, you guys have trademarked conversation worthy, all one word, yes. conversation worthy. Tell me what conversation worthy means at Camp and King and how it informs your creative process. When Jamie and I sat down, we were forming the agency and it was just the over the beer. What do we want this thing to be? What do we want our agency to be like? What is it that we want the creative? What do we want the work to do? 
He's like, I, I kind of want make, I want to make work people that talk about. That's what I want. And then that went off and created conversation worthy. I think conversation worthy has proven really well. And back to your point of having a word, a thing, a proprietary, it helps clients. Like you get into a pitch and you're with 10 other of your, your, your peers and different agencies and you're presenting all of your, your, your bodies of work to them. They need some hook to be able to understand what it is you do that might be a little different than somebody else. Like, give me those conversation worthy guys. But it's a shorthand for them to be able to kind of understand you. It also is something we measure ourselves on when we start to get any client we have in the door is how much brand conversation are we creating for them? So it is a measurement, yes, within our halls. It actually, I think personally, has more of, a, of an understanding, a shorthand for potential clients, especially when we're in the, in the throes of a, a pitch with 12 others. I mean, it's, 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 brilliant. it's brilliant in its simplicity and it has a certain, it has a certain charm and humility to it that I think is a extension <laughs> of, of the personality of the agency. Yeah. And, and it's, and it does feel proprietary, but it doesn't go so far as to feel kind of absurd or contrived. So it's just, it's these little things that you develop and you throw a TM at the end of it. And there's like, <laughs> now it seems legit. It's legit. Yeah. Uh, you guys have won the ad age, small agency of the year award four times. Uh, you know, the press likes to ask like sports coaches, which championship ring means the most to them. <laughs> So I'll ask you which small agency of the year award means the most to you. Uh, the last one, I think it was probably of the biggest size. Um, and it also feels, I remember the first time we won it, there was a moment where we would, we had tried a few years prior um, and we didn't get it. And it back to that being heartbroken moment um, that probably made when we finally won, there was this like, Oh my God, we're being recognized. Whatever we're doing right now, this is fantastic. And trust me, within this, this, this journey, there's been these little moments of, you know, we all take the agency out and we get buses and go on a you know day excursion somewhere. And at some point you look over all these people or you walk through the agency and you're like, oh my God, all these people are following this vision that we've started. Like, it's amazing. How crazy is that? So having it affirmed with a small agency win, somebody else, third party saying, hey, you're doing a good job. It's kind of why we all love award shows too, right? Like yeah. fuck, all of our peers are saying you're doing something right. So this how many, how many how many of them are you? How, how many do you guys have now, Roger? We're at 60, 65, maybe wow. if you open. Um, and we're starting now between here and Chicago, where we're starting to kind of bolster up those. That's a new entity for the last couple of years. We're gonna start growing. Um, but the small agency win, this last one was one of the best, for sure. Um, because it was of and if it weren't for those goddamn high dive guys who did the the Bill Murray spot. Son of a bitches, we would have won the overhaul. Oh, that was a good just spot. after them. That was a good spot. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. And I even said to them, "They're gonna, yeah, that'll win." Um, last month, you know, you had brought up the relationship with Havas and Havas being sort of a big brother and really being in a kind of this cool support role early on. There was a proximity where you have your independence, but there's a cool value exchange between you and this larger entity that can you know, they can kind of filter your resources when you need it, filter you the right advice, or, you know, I'm, I'm guessing probably, you know, some client opportunities as well. And the relationship must be really good because it culminates this fall with uh, Havas acquiring Camp and King. First of all, man, I just want to tell you, congratulations. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, when you, when you work so hard to create an independent agency with its own creative culture and its own vibe, did you and Jamie talk about, sort of how do you protect or bottle that magic so that it's not lost or compromised as it becomes part of the larger entity? Definitely. Definitely. That was a huge sticking point. It, the greatest part of all of it was as we entered into, and every year they would come. So they had a very small minority. Every year, they, it was never structured that there were triggers that they would ever you know, get more. It was just this agreement we had. So every year they would come and say, you know, we'd like to become a, a larger partner within you. And we were like, ah, let's, we're going to keep going our own path. This last year we were like, all right, let's, let's entertain that. Like we were starting to, I wanted to grow beyond where we were. We had kind of hit this kind of threshold. I wanted, I wanted a little bit more. We entertained it. Jamie and I uh, sat down and talked. And one of the things that we were really worried about was, are we going to still be us? Um, 
And it, 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 it's a very a, a question that was brought up by the junior partners at the agency and everybody who heard about it. The beauty was we knew who we were in bed with. Like we had been partners with them for so long. So it wasn't as if it was an outside company coming in to make a larger acquisition and you were just going to get kind of folded in and not know the players. We've been working with these guys for the last 10 years. Um, so we knew who they were. So part of it was making sure that, and, and I think our value to them is to retain who we are. Like for them to grab us and pull it into what their, their system is, doesn't benefit them. Like that doesn't do anything for them, but we are, call it the, their shiny new object that we're a little smaller. We're gonna be able to be more, call it nimble. We're getting different opportunities than they ever would. So it provided a different, uh, it provided uh, something different for them. And yet we knew exactly kind of what we were partnering and who we were partnering with. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so now let's come back to the to where we started, actually. And I thought that was a fascinating point you made about you reach a certain point where you can't look at everything anymore. You can't approve everything anymore. And you have to trust that the thing that you've built is bigger than the two individuals whose name is on the side. And it requires relinquishing control and it's a learning process. You said you called PJ Pereira and, and some of the other greats who've kind of been down this path before. What have you learned about, you know, how to do that successfully? Uh, <laughs> and, and, where, and where are you in that process? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the mix of it right now. We're, we're just trying to figure out what, what, what are the new roles? How do we make sure that the agency is healthy, growing in people? And especially um, Rakesh Lal, uh, and Jesse Dillo, who are my uh, CCOs, are making sure, or sorry, ECDs, are making sure that they're owning their 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 business and being able to grow. So one of the things that we're doing is I reached out to PJ, I reached out to um, Venables, uh, David Angelo, and Jose Moya, and I was like, all right, you guys are kind of now you're on your way. Like, can you remember back when you were at that point where? you and everything you've done so far to help this agency grow, maybe the best thing for you to do is to find a slightly different role for you and to let those people that you have empowered for all this time really empower them. And, and they all, like truly, like PJ's like, even some of the words you're using to describe what you're talking about are very relatable to what, to what I said. Um, and each one of them had their own slightly different tact. And I think Jose Moya said, it's like, make sure whatever you're doing isn't redundant. So if you've got somebody in there and you've got an ECD that is handling this account, don't be redundant. Make sure that you've got something else that you're turning your attention to. Could be clients, could be client dinners, could be maintaining a client relationship, could be hiring, making sure that the hiring process is going well. But make sure whatever it is that you're doing within the agency is not redundant with somebody else. Uh, and I think carving out that space is what I'm in the midst of trying to figure out now. I mean, it is a great word for it because that that redundancy is where resentments fester, where you hire someone and you call them an ECD or you call them a CCO. Hey, you're the CCO. Just make sure you show the work. <laughs> uh, at, once it, make, it makes it through the gauntlet of the rest of the agency, then I'm going right. to have to look at it. And right. it's it, have yeah. comments. Yeah. yeah. Different different titles mean different things at different agencies. But, you know, it, people know where they stand based on your ability to relinquish control and right. look, but by the way, does it, can you envision it getting to a point where you see the spot that you guys produced for the first time when it's on TV? Is that, is that an acceptable outcome for you at some point? I mean, wait, before you answer, he's, he's nervously tugging and pulling on his <laughs> ear as I ask the question. <laughs> um, Yes, it is. That's, a, that's an absolutely viable decision. Yes, it could happen. It could happen. And it's what we're trying to figure out right now. Right. Um, I'm trying to figure out when, in the midst of like in this process, one of the things that I heard from some of the guys were just doing quarterly reviews, just making sure that everybody's on the same page. Others were meeting kind of just with their, their ECDs or their CCOs. Um, on a weekly basis and just having a beer and talking about things. But I think a lot of, you know, that moving to what it would be a creative chairman role um, means different things for even the four people that I spoke with. So I'm trying to back to the, like grabbing the best of some of the agencies that I've worked with, uh, worked at, what are some of the best moment, things that I can grab from these four guys? 
Within that context, do you worry <laughs> about being too hard on people or worrying about being too soft on people as a manager? Uh, it's going to go either way, depending on the day. Um, I think, I think we all know what we're trying to create. Um, I want to make, if anything, I probably come across verbally and it may be sending the wrong signals verbally is too soft, but yet the, the vision of what I want the work to be in my head might be a lot higher. So I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that. I like to say ideas are, are only as good as our ability to sell them. You know, sell is a sort of controversial word, I think, especially among creatives. We don't like to think that we're selling ideas. So whether it's sell or get to yes, um, what's your approach to the salesmanship of ideas in a client meeting? Are you, are you energetic? Are you restrained? Are you scripted? <laughs> Do you have sort of the first five sentences played out in your head? Are you relying on slides? What, what, what's, the, what's the Roger Camp approach to, to presentation? Verbal vomit. <laughs> like I, I'm, what about this? And I, part of, part of, I think what comes through, hopefully it does, is there is, a, there is a sincerity in, in how I'll get passionate about something, whether it's a part of the presentation, whether it's this one thing and being able to make sure that the passion of what I envision this brand being able to do comes through. Cause that would be in contrast to a lot of what I think, and maybe why this relationship the, 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 the rigor that Jamie and some of the strategists have given to this, the strategic side of it, I want to make sure that they're feeling the, not only the rational, but the emotional side of what I think that the brand could do. Right. So there is a lot of me and, and it's a funny thing where they, they've teased me where my, my creatives would say, I put my hand on my heart sometimes and give them this kind of like impassioned speech, but it is, there is part of, of me that I want to make sure that they're feeling what it is that I think this either brand, this piece that we're presenting, whatever it is that we're trying to get them to make with us, that they're feeling it the same way. I'm sort of, the, I would describe myself similarly. Here's where it's getting, it's gotten me into trouble. I wonder if, if the same is true for you. So it goes great in terms of just exuding that passion. Sometimes there's feedback in the room and my instinct is to sort of solve the feedback in the room at the end of the meeting. And it's almost always met with a negative response. And I think the reason is because like, well, the answer should require more thought and more rigor. You shouldn't be able to know exactly how to fix what I just asked for right now. I think it's part of sort of the corporate, you know, uh, contract of like, no, things are supposed to like churn over the course of days and weeks. We can't just get to it right now. Have you suffered from that same kind of- A million, a million percent. Because you have an idea, they're going to throw a slight hiccup in it. You want to make sure that it's smoothed out and doesn't fester and grow. So you're going to try and solve it right away so that they know, oh, okay, that's not as big of a problem. When you should probably be sitting back and just letting that kind of come into the room and say, you're going to you know, think about it and, and we'll try and address it later. <laughs> Right. It's hard. You do want to nip it in the bud before it becomes something bigger. Is that that's where I I'm with you and fall under that sometimes. I, I try to I just stop myself and I file it away and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> We're gonna pretend it took three days to yeah. deliver the thing yes. that I definitely have in my brain right now. Um, <laughs> do you get nervous before client meetings anymore? Yeah, I think there is. There, oh yeah, for sure. It depends on who and what the client is. I think when you've developed a relationship with certain of you know, clients that, that that you have a, a rapport with, it's it's fun. Like to me, like there's nothing more exciting than you're on brand. You look at the work and you're excited about something, and you just want to get them to go buy off on it. Right. There's other times when you're playing with the new entities, and especially now in this kind of COVID world of doing this, where you're not being able to do that same that same passion plea of like why this is so good or why this is right. Or so new clients, definitely. There's always that there's going to be a little bit of jitters going in. Yeah. Roger, we end every episode with the same three questions. Are you ready? Uh, yeah. Ready. Okay. Question number one, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Uh, I have two. Can I go quick? Please. The first, the first one is and, A-N-D, because it means nobody's really made up their mind and they can't be kind of focused on what it is, what I'm fucking solving. So give me this and a little bit of that. No, damn it. Pick one. The other one is push us. Lately, that's the one that's kind of gotten under my skin a little bit is when you get the client giving you the push us speech. When 
maybe it's just some of the last uh, moments that we've had where, where clients are saying that, but you then push them and there's a retreat back to where they are. Maybe you need to do that just to get them back to where you were. I don't know. But that word push us sometimes just becomes like, I don't like what I see here. Give me something else. Right. Push us is a, push us is a, it can be like a, a great invitation. Or it, can be sort of the, it can sort of be the worst cliche of like, you're saying that because you know that CMOs are supposed to say that, but I don't really think you want us to. Yes. Amen, my friend. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Question number two, what is the most fucked up response you ever got uh, from a client during a creative presentation of your work? Ah, okay. So uh, back.com days, we had a client of ours that was, it was a fast track. We were shooting, uh, we were shooting commercials for them on Friday. We were editing Saturday, finishing Sunday, and it was on Monday night football. That was our turnaround. So we're going in, we film this stuff. It's, 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 it's funny and it's great, but it's quirky as fuck. It was, uh, it's, uh, it's old CNET work. CNET, I mean, it was just really weird. It was guys in a yellow room. It was just surreal, but we shot it. The client that they had on, on, on in LA there approving it um, might've been uh, meeting us probably about midnight on Saturday to approve all these cuts that we had to go finish Sunday and then, and then get on Monday night. He shows up in the hotel, we're waiting for him. It's like 11 o'clock, rolls into like 12 o'clock, 12.30. And then he kind of might've shown up and he might have like three or four ladies with him. His shirt's a little open. We go back to his room. It was me and the account guy going back to his room. We're gonna we're gonna show him these 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 spots, and rough cuts. So he falls on the bed with the <clears throat> ladies, and they're just kind of drinking. And my uh, account guy and I are explaining what they're about to see. And in kind of this drunken stupor, he's like, "Just play the spots," and he does that. So we then hit play. We talk, and I go to start saying something, and he just goes. Shh. And he turns to the ladies on the bed and he was like, what do you think? <laughs> and, and I'll use air quote again, the air quote, the ladies on the bed, all like the spot. Therefore it was approved and we got to go uh, finish it up and have it on Monday night football. And it did really well for us. <laughs> One of the few examples of a successful focus group. It was great. Oh was man. Great. <laughs> That's kind of that. Yeah. Usually fucked up. It has a negative connotation. That's sort of a wonderful fucked up. Right. Yeah. See, hookers should always approve your spot. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the final question is called the one that got away. What is that one beloved idea that you couldn't sell for whatever reason, but it continues to live in your heart or it continues to haunt you to this day? Um, there was, as the agency was formed, I had left Wyden, but I still knew a bunch of the guys. I got called in to help them out. Some just uh, throw, give us some ideas, freelance ideas for, it was the Chrysler um, Super Bowl. It was a return to the Super Bowl for Chrysler. It ended up being that M&M spot. That was great for why. Yeah. But we were concepting other ideas at the time. And the one that we, they kept talking about, it was Chrysler and it was their return from the dead. And the one thing that I wanted to do was no matter what spot they ultimately chose, I thought it was crucial and it was almost PRable in a way that every person in that Super Bowl spot would have been physically dead at some point and then brought back to life as a story that just lived in the background. You never really knew it. it might have, you know, it'd be all over the press, but it would never be a part of like, you know, the actor, they wouldn't say it. It was just filled with people who had somehow died on the table for two minutes, brought back to life. It just would have been a great resurgence story, this idea of revival and applied to the Chrysler brand. Huh? Not bad. I know. I, you know the, the, the trick with that question is it's like, I'm always curious what people will tell me because, you know, more than half the time, it's something that could still get made. Totally. Um, I got another one that I can't tell you, but I'd love to do well, it. I was going to say, I mean, I've got this great repository of stolen ideas. That <laughs> just start a company and just with all the stolen ideas I have now from all the legendary advertising grades. Um, Look, man, I, I, I thank you for joining me today. I, I just wanted to, I want to tell you that as a, as a creative leader and as an entrepreneur, you are a huge inspiration to me and um, no one else really knows this, but you know, I basically cold called you for some career advice three months ago. And at the end of that call, I told you that I just, I hope one day I'm a fraction as generous and forthcoming 
to someone calling me for advice as you were to me on that day. And it's just something that I, um, I won't forget. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that we became friends and, uh, and, and I just, I can't see what you, I can't, I can't wait to see what you guys do next, man. Ah, you're a good friend. Thank you, buddy. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much to Roger Camp. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, Mr. Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. And as always, folks, if you are liking the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.